Today, we're talking to Lance Anderson, Deputy CEO at Dickinson Wright, about the untapped business benefits of university research and joint ventures. You're listening to Joel Beasley, Modern CTO. But you work with technology leaders to leverage university R&D for product innovation. Now, here's why I found this compelling. I've talked around it. Like I've talked to the research type people, I've talked to the CTOs, and they all kind of give a little explanation about how it works between the, you know, the business sector or taking products to market or whatever it may be. But I had an episode about two or three months ago with an AI attorney who was like absolutely right. brilliant. Josh, do you remember his name? I can't remember if Josh Yeah, uh, Oliver. Oliver. Yeah, he was he's dealing with all the storm that is, you know, I'm an author and you're using my voice and all this how it will play out right. in courts with the AI and who owns what type situations. And then when then your opportunity came up shortly after that great conversation, I said, "Why not talk to another attorney?" Right? This is this is great. <laughs> and I was hoping you could just explain to me exactly what you do and how that whole situation plays out and then I'll have a ton of questions for Sounds you. Sounds perfect. And I and I think Look, th- this is a uh, an interesting little kind of sub industry that's been that's been there for a long time, but uh, effectively taking university research and benefiting the you know society is difficult, right? You can publish a paper, I guess, and teach people. Um, that's one way to do it, and certainly that's kind of the foundation of our educational system. But the there's this technology transfer concept that we tend to point to and say that that's really what needs to happen more. And so, yeah, I I spend a lot of time, you know, I'm a practicing attorney and a lot of my clients, I'm in Austin, Texas, so everyone's got a startup, including me. Um, But the, the, the struggle is to leverage innovation. And when it's coming out of a university, it really is a, a, there, there's a set of challenges with that. And it's hard to explain sometimes uh, without really getting in the weeds as to, you know, what are the true motivations of each of us? Okay, so say I'm a university professor, you know, it's it's going to look one one way. That's why I decided to get into academia versus if I'm a entrepreneur and I've started a company, it's going to look, you know, it's going to be a completely different picture and I'm going to have completely different goals and objectives. And it's literally an oil and water situation. And so trying to make that all work uh, for the benefit of mankind is, is you know, something that, that I've worked with for, geez, almost 25 years. So um, going back to those early days, it, it, it really uh, began with kind of watching a university, my alma mater, start uh, an office that's meant to commercialize technology. Okay, and they were basically looking into the the institution and saying, "Hey, everyone, send us your cool inventions, and we'll go do something with it and make you all a lot of money." <laughs> well, they don't care about that, right? That's not why faculty researchers went into a uh, university setting. And so, I, I got to watch all that blow up in you know the faces of the administration, and and as they tried to to get a a program propped up and, and running that would essentially do this function. And, and since then, I've gone in with a venture capital company that's taken advantage of these opportunities. And, and even more recently, I've gotten into the you know, private law practice and 
So a lot of what I do is represent companies doing deals with universities. I represent universities as they do deals with companies. Uh, we represent joint ventures where they all throw in certain tools and uh, try to do something together. Uh, corporate initiatives where big companies come in and fund entire you know wings of uh, an institution's department and you know try to do it that way. It's it's really cool to when it when it works. The problem is it hardly ever works, and so you know you got to point to the reasons why, figure out how you can do better next time. And, and often there's, there's common issues with most of the failures that I like to point to and say, see, we can't do that. We need to be doing something, something different. And so at a high level, this technology transfer industry, so to speak, is a continually evolving one that's trying to mix this oil and water. I can't speak much from the college perspective, uh, <laughs> largely because I didn't go. But <laughs> my my siblings went; they became doctors and scientists and stuff. But I just got into programming right out of school, and I said, "This this is what I'm doing." But so I do have the entrepreneurial aspect of it, and so I will ask if I'm an entrepreneur, say a tech entrepreneur or science entrepreneur, and I want, you said a lot of times this doesn't work out. It's a real difficult situation. But let's say I'm fishing for opportunities. Maybe I just sold my company and I'm fishing for opportunities. How can, what would a, you said sometimes it does work. What are some traits or some things an entrepreneur can look for within these programs or within these university systems? And how would they recognize that it's a good match right. or a good so, deal? So it's tricky. So you, you as an entrepreneur, you're going to have a focus uh, in a certain technology. So let's just uh, consider there being an innovation or an interest in taking advantage of certain innovations in a certain field. Let's say lasers. Lasers. All right. So you just got, make it up. Yeah, yeah I'm interested. You're, in you're lasers, interested yeah. in lasers, and so I can tell you right now, there's certain institutions across this nation that have expertise in lasers. Uh, there are the the world's foremost laser experts located in, in some of the halls of our academic institutions. And so you then identify where these strengths lie. Okay. And they could be at state institutions, at private uh, institutions, at uh, non-academic uh, research institutions. Uh, they're, they're everywhere, right? And so if you're going to trade functions, uh, certain areas of expertise, um, you will learn kind of where your experts are. And so you, then you can kind of tag along and say, okay, well, this one goes to MIT. Well, I happen to know that MIT is well-developed in their ability to engage in this technology transfer exercise. So the next step would be once you've identified where these areas of expertise, you know, where they are, you would then say, okay, well, how are those institutions set up to accommodate something like an entrepreneur knocking on the door saying, hey, I'm interested in, in working with you guys. So you can kind of de-risk the whole concept by uh, doing your homework on each of these institutions because each university, let's just call it a university, and just remember, I'm talking about health sciences centers and other labs that mm -hmm. may not necessarily qualify as universities. So let's just say a university, it, you, can, you can reach out to them and they will have a dedicated office for the most part to this. Now that, that office may be one person or it may be 30 
depending on the size of the institution. And their their job is to sit there and say, okay, this this opportunity has presented itself. Let's put the entrepreneur in, in touch with the faculty researcher and see if they can get something going. And that something could be uh, the entrepreneur funds some research in there. Um, or it could be the entrepreneur kind of pokes around and says, look, I've got some cool things going on over here. I've got some market channels I've addressed. And you know what over there in your lab or in your area of, of the uh, department can come and help me, all right? It could be a security application. It could be some type of uh, analytics capability. It could be some access to supercomputing, uh, you name it. In our lasers hypothetical, it could be an experimental new uh, high-efficiency laser uh, that gives wonderful optical or sensory qualities, and it's a better laser. And so what, what you'll want to do is learn more about that because it might benefit your business. The way you do that is then that is the challenge. How do you interface and how do you get what you need without uh, having the institution feel like they're being taken advantage of from the standpoint of knowledge transfer because nothing's free. And so what's in it for them? It could be research funding. It could be royalties on your sales. It could be they take a piece of your venture. Um, all of those are mechanisms that have begun to become commonplace. And so that's what I do is try to co go in once that, that match has been made and the parties want to work with each other. I'll come in and help organize all of the uh, structures that you know we consider to be best practices. And again, even with all that, it's still a risky endeavor. This would be a good time to plug your website. People can learn more information. What would that be? I'm at the law firm of Dickinson Wright, and that's uh, DickinsonWright.com. We're a full-service law firm with about 500 lawyers. we got about 20 offices. We just announced yesterday we're opening Denver, so we're excited about that. Uh, the firm was born out of Michigan, uh, Detroit, uh, and it, it, the funny, it's 140 plus years old. And I think it was the, the firm that actually incorporated uh, Chrysler. So it, oh, cool. it's got pretty interesting roots way back into the uh, automotive, you know, golden era. And certainly is a Midwestern firm. And we have offices in Nashville and Fort Lauderdale and in certain places like that too. Nice. All right. So Laser, Laser University. Let's say... Yep. That we'll just use, we'll just say MIT has a laser department. I'm sure they okay. do at some, some point. I bet they do. And I'm a laser entrepreneur and I'm going to approach them. So would it be fair to say that some of these schools have more advanced programs that are more familiar with how they would want to partner with royalties or percentages and anything? Some people have their stuff together better than others. So if I'm a laser person, I might look at two or three highly efficient laser programs at different colleges. And I'll know after interacting with them in my first interaction or two, how mature their ability is to interface with an entrepreneur. Is that right? Absolutely. You're, you'll learn real quick. And look, I almost, I believe sometimes that the larger institutions may be actually more difficult to work with, uh, they, that have well-established, uh, functionality for this versus, maybe a smaller institution that really wants to get in the game or that has a, a great opportunity that they don't have a lot of, right? And and they want to take that and shepherd it through. You get a lot more attention sometimes with that. 
So depend, it, depending on what you're looking for, you may be wanting to affiliate yourself with a household name like MIT and their special laser department. Uh, you may rather want to f- focus on infrastructure. So, you know, some new facility has been built at some smaller institution and they've made it very clear they're open for business. And that might actually get you further down the road than going and working uh, with, you know, MIT's laser department. Now, the the profile of the faculty researcher, the profile of the institution is certainly, you know, one aspect of that. If you go to an institution that's never done this before, uh, you know, you may put yourself in a, a weird spot where you're having and, and you could have folks like me helping, right? But we're having, we collectively are having to educate the other side and make sure they understand exactly what it is we want. Uh, sometimes gets gets to be difficult. So it's very fact sensitive as to what technology, what research unit, the nature of the office, uh, the nature, the, the profile of the institution itself, all of that does factor in. And while it does seem uh intuitive to say, you know, the, the more established, larger institutions would be the easier to work with. That's not quite always the case. Uh, sometimes they're a little too rigid. And if you ever you hear the term, you know, bureaucratic, uh, yeah. you run right into that sometimes. <laughs> um, and it, it could take months to do what in the real world might take a couple weeks. So you would, with all of that in mind, you would basically make contacts if i wanted to do a first point of contact let's say uh let's say a smaller call let's say usf right they're a smaller one but they're the ones that were close to me growing up and just an hour away so let's say i want to do some of the university of south florida right and i could my first thing would i first call like the main campus and ask if they have some entrepreneurial connection, what word would I use? Or would I look for a department head of lasers and call that person? Who would my first phone call be to? You could. So if, if you're at like a conference and you see the, the faculty researcher after they give mm-hmm. their talk, you know, start there, throw that card. They'll know where to go. But where you can go absent that point of contact is to e- each of the office's They'll call it a technology transfer office. They'll call it an office okay. of research commercialization. They they have various terms for it, but it all it kind of the, the terms commercialization, technology transfer, technology commercialization, uh, you know, variations thereof, and they usually fall under the research office. And so, if you go to a web a website, just any university, uh, they'll usually have an academics, administration, and a research tab. And if you click that, you'll get pretty close to where you need to go. And they all are sister offices. So there'll be a sponsored research office. There'll be the technology commercialization office. They'll all know where to send you once you drop in there. Um, so it's, and, and a lot of them have their own websites that once you get to, it'll, they'll give you all the contact. You want life sciences, call this person. You want uh, physical sciences, call this person. Um, you know, you want to license technologies, call this person. They'll even sometimes give a list of technologies available uh, for license. And so you've heard me a couple of times say, you know, license, the term license. Uh, that, that's really the one of the main mechanisms for this technology transfer uh, experience, so to speak. So it involves 
they will own the technology, the innovation, and they will give a license uh, to you, the entrepreneur, to go out and hit the market with it. And that can be exclusive a lot of times, which is great, right? Because no one else is going to do it. It gives you a little bit of an advantage. Um, so think of it like music licensing. I mean, you're in Nashville. It's, it's a similar mm-hmm. concept where uh, anything you go and do exploiting that innovation, you're going to owe back a royalty. And that's typically what you'll see, at least as a starting point on how these deals get set up. Not that that's necessarily a good thing. Do you ever see this happen? So I got to have on and talk with the CTO of NASA at the time it was Douglas Terrier. I don't know if he's still the CTO today, but he was a super cool guy. And he explained to me all the different cool gadgets that we have because of NASA. And then they had these technology transfer programs. Do you ever do any work with the, I know that universities are kind of like the government to some degree, um, some of them, but do you ever work with the government and private or is it just university systems and, and entrepreneurs, things like that? Well, I'm glad you brought that up because that actually is often, you know, you'll see the noise of kind of the university, uh, you know, this little industry of university tech transfer, uh, dominate a lot of the headlines. And frankly, the working with the federal government, with the federal labs has actually been, it, it could be easier, more, more stable. And honestly, they have a little more clarity on what their job is at the end of the day. Now, this would involve thing, uh, groups like, uh, NIH, National Institutes of Health, mm-hmm. Department of Defense, DOD, uh, Department of Energy, DOE. And they have, in recent years, essentially said, hey, we want to benefit the private sector. So from DOD's perspective, you know, their job, I mean, they're like a $40 billion university, right, with mm-hmm. a bunch of different labs spread across the country. And they have paid a Paid for by tax dollars. Yeah, paid for by tax dollars. <laughs> With a yeah. centralized, uh, somewhat centralized management group, and they'll say, and they've also said, uh, dear DOD and and you know contractor employees, etc. Uh, part of our mission is to benefit public, the you know benefit society, and the way we want to do that is by interacting with the private sector. So not only is the DOD trying to uh, make Americans safer and to make everyone else less safe, right? By killing them. But they also want to use dual use technologies and having um, some of this development benefit society in different ways. And if you've ever toured some of these federal labs, um, NASA, I've toured a lot of them. It is mind blowing, even from my, you know, unclassified position to walk some of these halls. It is mind blowing what they have going on, ranging from, you know, the chemical arts to industrial materials, coatings, uh, other things like that. So it almost makes you optimistic for the future of our society when you see some of the stuff that they're coming up with. It really they does. Definitely, they definitely have these mechanisms as well. Morby, we got to turn off the news and then go walk into labs. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we'll see, get, our, get our hope back. But you're exactly right. I've made an entire career out of finding, I mean, look, 
is my entire job to look for new cool emerging technology and talk to the people creating it and you know talk to great leaders and people doing interesting things and i can't we can't even keep up we have a whole team doing it so as a consumer if if i'm every week saying oh my gosh that's so cool look at this new company that's doing it oh they're not new they've been around since 1929 and they have 100,000 employees you know, right. or whatever it is to, to have these moments of, you know, awareness and insight, and new information to me, just this constant stream. I've got a research team. They send me stuff every day. There are so many amazing, cool things happening in so many different niches. I mean, just even if you just scope it all the way down to image recognition inside of medicine, amazing thing happening there on like a weekly, biweekly basis. It's crazy. Yes. The, you and and you're you're kind of getting to a point where now we start throwing in advances in computing, AI mm-hmm. being right in the middle of that conversation, and it makes everything, you know, increase in potential. Right, the the developments and the discoveries that we're coming up with. Um, I, so I'm my background's in plant genetics. Right, I was a mm-hmm. I was a farm boy. Um, you know, f- genetics are just essentially, you know, using four amino acids as opposed to two that you see in computing, there's similarities in there. And you start seeing, you know, how much advances we're making on the, you know, genetics side and personalized medicine and the ability to screen, um, and then start coupling that with the computing arts and where that's going. Uh, it's going to be an interesting next few years to say the least. Uh, and I'm sure your AI discussions were kind of going along those lines as well. Yeah, that is so cool. I actually saw yesterday on my wife's car, she has she had a red car and then there was this green bug thing on it and its whole back looked like a leaf. And I got super close with the camera and took a picture of it. It looked highly detailed like a leaf. I don't know what it was, but I was super excited to see it. And I, I've, I've seen animals or the, the, I'm sorry, the insects that camouflage themselves and that look like certain things. But this was the pixel by pixel, the closest thing I've ever seen to a leaf, this, this little insect. It was crazy. That's awesome. Um, I don't know if you know that. There's a, Katie did, would often, you know, their wings are kind of vertical. They're the type of grasshopper, but they, I, I think their wing structure looks very much like a lid, but they're very green. Um, yeah. So looks like a leaf. Yeah, it was. it was like green. Yeah. It looked like a green leaf. Um, have you messed around with Mid Journey, dude? Have you seen this yet? Yeah, I mean, you can if if you follow if if you poke around in Mid Journey and follow some of the images and a and look at the prompts that develop those images, it's scary good how the the machine can actually interpret those prompts to come up with amazing works. I did it today. Yeah. For like the first, it is insane what they can come up with. And these are, yeah. you know, these are things that are evolving in real time. Like, um, I, I just, I did research in May and presented on, you know, AI as it applies to intellectual property and like who owns it. Right. Um, and those kinds of discussions. And even from then, I mean, there's a whole other data set available to us on, and on how that's evolving. And there's a bunch of lawsuits that have been filed even since then, um, based on, you know, copyright infringement you mentioned earlier. It's, it's crazy. Well, it's such a tough situation because I guarantee you, Lance, I mean, there are several billion, what, six, seven billion people on the planet. There is somebody who, if I put their voice next to yours, sounds identical to you. 
there's somebody right. that sound that speaks like you that has a similar tonal quality. There, there just is, right? Um, we're all familiar with the concept of like a doppelganger. So yep. the real question is, if you have like Eminem, you know, the musician who speaks, it's his voice. Well, if he owns that from a tonal scientific perspective of putting the voice in speaking, like does he, what about the other five people that speak and sound exactly like him without even trying? They just wake up and that's who they are. Do they know because he got popular first, do they no longer have rights to their very own voice? (laughs) I mean, it's a real tough situation or people that look exactly like people just because we look the same. Does that mean that because you were popular first that you own that look and no one else can look like that. It's a very, it's a really hard, they're hard questions because we know the answers and it's like, there's, it's, it's going to come down to like intent and relationship. It's going to be a real weird situation when it comes out because, you know, I should be able to make music if I wake up tomorrow and somebody's like, Oh, the music you make sounds like this other guy's music. So you can't make it. That's just not how life works. No, it's not. And, you know, we've got examples, maybe pre-AI examples of of this. You've got some music cases that have come out with Ed Sheeran in particular, which that one yep. to me, I was like, why did that even go to trial? It, it didn't seem to me like a copy uh, scenario. Um, and I can tell you there's 10 other songs that take the same beat. Um, you know, you're right. I mean, there's there will always be uh, similarities and patterns and you know, dialects, sounds, et cetera. Um, it, it just, it's just the nature of the beast. And then you start throwing in creative opportunities to create things that benchmark off of recorded things like photos and videos and sounds, um, like some of these AI tools, mid journey being, you know, obviously in, in the crosshairs of, of a lot of the discussion, where does it start and where does it stop? And you've got concepts out there. Um, remember Google scanned all the books for the digitization. Okay. That was deemed fair use. Okay. So now you got mid journey using the, well, I think it's the diffusion model where it's technically copying images to then learn on what is that? Right. I I don't know. It seems less overt than Google scanning books, but you know, you're, you may see this kind of spin, you know, the pendulum go the other way on this because it is, it's, it seems like it's so unfair for artists, but yet it's so awesome and impactful for potentially for society. I just think new business models are going to emerge. I totally. mean, since the beginning of time, I mean, I, it's basically just made everybody super rich in the following way. If I was a king in the 1400s, I could just go find the best people in the land and pay them and have them infinitely create as much as I so deemed, right? And the thing is, now we have that. Now I can go directly. I have the equivalent of a full-time graphic designer for literally pennies on the hour, right? It costs me like a couple cents per hour of computer, whatever it is, for, for right. running those models. Same thing with our creative writers and the GPT systems, the chat GPT. Yep. Yeah, they're trained on these data sets, right? But then that training isn't like exactly those data sets stored. It's almost like an abstraction of it consuming that data set. And then we're, it's learning from all of our input on top of that. How can you, you won't be able to trace that back, right? Like if it was one of those class action lawsuits where they're like, oh, your ad account on Facebook, you know, in 2016, you get a $5 credit because we traced it back to something. How are you going to trace back 
all the consumption of the internet into these models and then the models getting compressed and compounded on top of each other and then new learnings emerging from that. I don't think a money thing is going to come of it. No. And and if you yeah. already see some of these early cases that are filed, they're class actions on, you know, featuring a few artists on behalf of all artists. It's like, okay, what, you know, it will maybe, you know, the damages of, of that appear to be more shaping policy and go forward behavior as opposed to there's, there's no way you can account back and give proper attribution to anyone. Was it the, they that created the work that's important or we that consumed the work and thus have it featured in a you know popular streaming platform with more hits than you know my video that I, I you know what I mean it's like it, it, they're going to consume the internet the way we set it up if that makes sense. And and all of the benefits and drawbacks of the way it's currently presented to any user. How do you think this will play out from a legal perspective? And try keep it like super high level for us for us normal folk that That's hard. <laughs> don't yeah. have a legal education. Do, well, do will will these courts rule on these cases and then we'll use the rulings of those cases to make like how do you think it'll play out from a case standpoint? Well, okay, so the cases are starting up. Uh, in the meantime, you have uh, some of the executives involved in the very creation of these tools saying we need reform, right? And we've all seen that in the headlines. Um, I think what what we are starting to do, we in the discussion of how does it shake out at the end of the day, you know, intellectual property rights and uh, generative AI tools. Um, Europe is leading the charge in kind of policy formation. And so maybe I would say, you know, let's all go see what they're up to and, and see if we can glean from that opportunities to shape our own policy. Um, in the meantime, you've got these cases starting to mature within the court systems. And until, until there's a fix, right, there, there's, it's, it's not going to work. Like trying to apply old concepts of intellectual property law to these new technologies, there's a gap. And mm-hmm. so I think the way it's going to shape out is there first needs to be some ability to fill in the gap with, with true policy and then let that get tested by the courts. Uh, because right now it's just not, I think one case that I cited in my presentation in May was a, uh, a pre AI court case where there's a monkey in a zoo that took a selfie and they were trying <laughs> to, to say, you know, does the monkey own the copyright to the selfie? It took the portrait. And the court ruled, no, it has to be a human. That's what we're going off right. That's not enough, you know, because that makes every AI development public domain. And so we as lawyers are sitting there trying to buy companies and sell companies. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. These assets were developed partially with AI. So it gets to be uh, really tricky. Would it be safe to say that the economic impact will happen far before this is standard case law? I would agree. And you've got examples of industries, you know, kind of getting out in front of the policy and regulation uh, only to kind of normalize (laughs) over time. There it is right there. There's that monkey. He's looking good, though. Oh, that's a great selfie. A lot of character there, centered. Um, It'd be great if at the end of the photo there was like a little disclaimer that it's actually a mid-journey image. (laughs) Could be. 
the chat GBT uh, got the Supreme Court to litigate it. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, That's don't, don't trust anything you see. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have um, you seen the, uh, so I like music too. You like music. Josh likes music. We're all big music fans. I'm glad Ed won that case because I thought it was absurd. I was like, gold diggers. The moment I looked, I took me two minutes of research into it to realize, oh, yeah, it's the families of the families suing because they think they might have it. Anyway, but did you see the lawyers that ran the math and generated essentially every combination of, I think it was notes possible? Like they made every song that could ever be made or something like that. No. Did you see I this? Did not. No. Oh. It, it, it's oh. Be yeah. A, no. I, I have not seen this. Oh, you got to research it. Yeah. So they were there. These attorneys. I I briefly read about it. Okay. So take it with a grain of salt. But there were these attorneys, and they were constantly, you know, litigating music rights stuff. And they said they were also. I think one of them was also a mathematician of some sort. Okay. And he said, well, he looked at the notes and the scales, and you know, there's only so many, right? And he's like, so there's there's a finite number of combination of these in the universe. This is not an infinite number. Like this can be mathematically calculated. So they used a supercomputer. So they had the idea and they couldn't process it at the time because I think it was like the the early 2000s. There wasn't enough compute to, to do anything with the idea. But then it moved forward and then a few years ago it kicked back up again and they they actually processed onto a drive like every combination possible. I don't know if they did it with change in beats per minute or anything like that, but I know at least every combination of every note and every order they generated because it was just a math, wow. a function of math. And then they said, here you go. Like now no one owns any of this because it's all already been created. There you go, Josh. Josh got it up. Wow. Yeah, I'm not sure if this is the exact one, but yes. the number here, if you can read it, 68 billion melodies. He, he made every melody got generated from uh, from his algorithm or wow. whatever it was. Yep, 300,000 melodies a second. Yeah. Yep. That's So incredible. he just showed that all this stuff already exists. It's 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 us just putting it together with current context and and all of that in mind. And, and then you, yeah, and then you put a songwriter slash uh, terrible musician like me in the middle of it, and I can only play <laughs> with major chords, right? So that even further limits, and I can come up with original works uh, just the same. Uh, it just may, you know, may not sound as good, uh, and it may just use major chords, which would yeah. seemingly further limit it. Who's the band that uses uh, microtonal notes uh there's this whole concept of notes between the notes that uh and it's a it's a known band i just can't remember their name but anyway it's there's guitars they make that are allow you to kind of play the notes within the notes which seemingly opens the door for other notes but again you can take the same three chords and make one four five all day dude yeah (laughs) give it to me yeah that's what i like anyway right that's what's fun. What's fun is I am proficient enough at piano and guitar to be able to just pick up and play some basic stuff with some people. Uh, and and that's as far as my education's got me, right? Like I don't sit there and shred crazy solos and stuff like that, but I can jam. I can and jam. And that's what's fun. When that's I get stressed out or I yep. need some, I need to just, I call it connecting to the universe or whatever. When I just need this moment of stress relief, I can go sit down kick up that piano and just like, right. I call it emoting. It sounds kind of lame, but like you just, you can just emote through the music. It's pretty cool. You can. And, and if you, you know, I, I, 
I like to jam as well. I, I like to do it. Uh, my, my sons are finally taking it, you know, to heart and they're starting to get into it. And we, you know, can't, we're not really there where we can play entire songs together, but I mean, just somebody jump on a chord or a lick and let everyone just fill in and let's keep the structure out of it, you know, and, and just have some fun doing it. And it's amazing how cool that can sound sometimes when it all, you know, when everyone hits it the right way, there's no yeah. doubt that's fun. Yeah, I, I love it. I love the music. If I'm in your part of the your neck of the woods, I'll let you know. And yeah, I need a I need a keyboardist. Uh, yeah, we got. Go. <laughs> see, I can get you to the point where maybe I can come up with something and it sounds good while I'm while I'm jamming. But the minute you press record, I freeze up. <laughs> I'm not the guy. I need a I need studio guys come help me out here. Well, you can keep making these awesome relationships between universities, governments, and entrepreneurs, and you could that you're in the middle of changing the world. Like you're an integral part in that system of taking technology and transferring it. And I think that's a, a beautiful uh, a beautiful way to spend your time. It's much appreciated, and you know, kind of what we've been talking about: being able to see new developments, new innovation, and trying to harness that uh, when it. When it goes right, there's nothing more fulfilling that I could imagine doing um, as a lawyer, right? Um, but it it is a challenge, and I think it it really it amounts to. And, and you mentioned the federal labs as well. It, it applies to them, and it, it amounts to early discovery versus you know applied research and development, and ultimately product development. And so, trying to gauge what level of effort needs to be, you know, put on a situation now versus uh, next year versus three years from now, uh, you know, it's a challenge. And so you've got a university that really focuses on basic research. They're not looking out there trying to compete with someone. They're just trying to make, you know, cool stuff, make something better. Uh, and then, and then you bring in private enterprise where their motivations are, you know, competitive in nature, especially in a capitalist society. And so trying to talk to those two cultures at the same time and have them agree to stuff can be a challenge. And that's, that's, that's really where I spend a lot of time and it, you know, and when it works, like I said, it, it's very fulfilling. Do you ever help at the top of the funnel? So for example, let's say some existing business owners are listening or some technology leaders, and they want to explore this, but they don't necessarily know exactly how they want to get started. Maybe they want to call you up and say, "Hey, you know, I'm curious. We're in the laser space, or we're in this space, Lance. Do you know any universities that I? Do you ever help at top of funnel stuff, or do you just help once we have the relationship? We know we want to do something. No, I do, and that's probably my favorite kind of role to play. Would be. Um, so, and especially like we have large energy companies, uh, I've done some speaking before and it, you know, someone, it raised an eyebrow and they, re they reached out and said, you know, we haven't worked with you. We haven't done this before, right? We understand the concept and we understand the potential for that. Can you help us? And so it was absolutely that it was okay. Well, what are you interested in? Where's your sweet spot? What, where's your competitive advantage? Where's your disadvantages? And then we go and kind of shop around for for opportunities. I may, there were a few that I knew about. Uh, there were also some that, you know, as I mentioned before, we just looked into some, some areas and found some good opportunities. And that turned into a, a very productive set of collaborations uh, for purposes of making their products better. 
And in that case, it had to do with the surface functionalization. So they had uh, certain materials that they were, you know, in the industry and they wanted to make it more durable or uh, less reactive. And so we were able to fix the problem. And, oh, guess what? They had a bunch of patents around it. So it gave a competitive advantage at the, at the same time. So, yeah, if there's an opportunity for me to take someone that has never even talked to one university and say, come with me, let me show you what, you know, how this can help you. And we go through the process. We have some discussions with key thought leaders, right? They want to work with private sector. And in fact, all this started back in 1980. So we're not talking about an old concept here. I mean, I was born before 1980, so I'm maybe a little biased there. Uh, but the you know this is evolving; it's continuing to evolve, and and now you're seeing universities get much more uh, comfortable with joint ventures, which to me kind of sums up how this all needs to go down. It's not a license agreement in exchange for royalty. It's like let's everyone contribute into a new uh, a new venture, and let's go um, let's go off together, align our interests, align the motivations. And, uh, you know, benefit society by watching products reach the marketplace that are, you know, it's a better product, more efficient. product. So that, that's the ultimate goal. And I think we're, we're getting better and better in the technology transfer business. I like, I personally like the idea of joint ventures that I've had one successful one and it was definitely the perfect setup for a joint venture because we both had like equal contributions to the situation and uh and yeah it, it's been going two and a half years now it's going great yeah it's, i get checks it, every quarter and it, it, exactly runs. yeah that's and when it works like it, it's a great it's a great thing a great concept and guess what it's not it's not your family jewels. It's not you opening mm-hmm. things up for someone else to come in and run. It's, you know, everyone's contributing to a separate scenario, however that looks. And it's, we all agree on who's making the decisions and who's calling the shots. And um, if it's, you know, if you're wanting to just get out of the way, it's going to be designed that way. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of flexibility and a lot of, you know, potential in leveraging a joint venture structure. And again, it doesn't have to be a new business, a new entity that you form. It can be a creature of contract uh, where you just have a bunch of joint development agreements going around and everyone knows their role and the results we all share it. Yeah. Well, man, this is great. We made a podcast. How do you feel? Oh, Joel, I I appreciate it. Thanks for having me uh, participate with you guys. This is awesome. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.